Welcome to the second lecture of week 7 in Counseling 506. This time we will focus on counseling methods related to confrontation and confession. This is a critical unit because real change never takes place until we confront our problems and are able to confess our sins so that we might receive God's forgiveness and grace. And it's a challenge to the counselor because it is easy to assume that we have to figure all of this out. That if we just build the right kind of therapeutic relationship, people will be able to trust us enough to allow us to confront them. And then we'll feel comfortable enough to confess what is really going on. Now, some of that is true. The therapeutic relationship is vitally important. But the good news is that God is the one ultimately responsible to work through the relationships with clients, to bring them to the point of confessing their sins and of reconciling themselves to God and to others and ultimately to themselves. Let's take a moment to review what the Bible says about how God works and the lives of people to help us through confession of our sins and through the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 7.10 that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. We are seeking to promote in our clients a godly sorrow. We desire for them to get in touch with the deep hurt they are doing to themselves and to God. But our job is to deal with the people in front of us and let God deal with the sin and so it's important for us to help our clients understand that conviction for sin and sorrow for sin and repentance are gifts from God. For many people, healing cannot begin because they are determined to remain in control of every dimension of their lives. And their main motive for coming to counseling is to be more in control of their lives. But the spiritual principle is really quite the opposite. We have to admit we are powerless. We have to acknowledge that we cannot do it by ourselves. We need help. Now this is a challenging truth to communicate to people who are not Christians and who are coming from a humanistic or secular worldview where the greatest good is seen as being in full control of your life. So this requires a step-by-step -step building of trust and a careful working through the details of change that God can bring. To do this, we employ the process of redemption and reconciliation. The great news is that God is faithful and is always working to bring each person to a point of reconciliation. As John wrote in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now we're going to shift to looking at the therapeutic dynamics of hospitality in relationships. We'll go through this rather quickly since we've talked about it before, but it is important to remember the power of welcoming those who are strangers, strangers to themselves, to God and to other people, and the healing that it carries. Hospitality is that willingness to take a risk for the redemption of a person who is known to be a sinner. 
and hospitality involves both elements of receiving and of confrontation, working together in a dynamic balance. Since it can be difficult to fully discern sometimes when to welcome and encourage and when to confront, prayer is an essential part of extending hospitality. Welcoming sinners is a powerful and life-changing experience that some clients have never had before. When it comes to confronting sin, it's important to discern the best way to go about it. The key is to understand what level of trust you have built with a client. But this also takes understanding of your temperament as a counselor. Remember when we spoke in an earlier lecture that every person falls somewhere between being more encouraging or more confrontive? Your temperament will affect your ability to confront with openness towards your client and your comfort level in doing so and the manner in which you confront them, but also how you will be received when you confront your client. One form of confrontation is silence. Silence that is intentional on the part of the counselor. Silence in which you keep a neutral body language, in which you keep a blank or a neutral face to avoid giving approval or disapproval. Just simple silence. Sometimes you can take the next step by pondering, like in the old detective show Columbo. The detective would investigate crimes by wondering out loud about the details of a crime scene and would eventually have the suspects talking about what they had done. That's a fine technique for gently confronting behavior, comments, self-talk, and the thinking patterns of clients by wondering out loud. Then a third form of confrontation is to ask direct questions about the behavior of your clients. Since we want them to keep ownership of their decisions, we ask open-ended questions where they have to answer for themselves about the rightness or the wrongness of their actions, about the choices they have made, and the kinds of consequences these choices have produced. Where you have developed a high level of trust with a client, and if you have the experience in counseling, sometimes using direct censure can lead to change, but it does pose a risk. A client may withdraw after direct censure. They may feel condemned and judged. They may stop speaking, or you may get an angry reaction. Usually when people speak of confrontation, this is the only way that they think of, to tell it like it is, and sometimes relying upon a Bible verse. But this is one form that you should use carefully and sparingly. Another form of confrontation is what Brewer refers to as ahari, an English translation of a Hebrew word which roughly means in the end. For instance, in Proverbs 14.12, Solomon writes, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, ahari, it leads to death. If we can help our clients to visualize the trajectory of their thoughts or behaviors all the way to the end, it can be a great way to confront the nature of their behavior. We would simply ask questions like, and then what happens? Okay, and then what happens? 
or and then what happens? And last but not least, prayer can be a form of confrontation. To partner with your client, sometimes silently without their knowledge, and sometimes with them in session, to come against spiritual bondage and spiritual attacks shows an awareness on your part as a counselor that in Christian counseling we are engaged in spiritual warfare. As counselors, we are also healers. So we must constantly ask ourselves, is what I'm doing causing any harm to my client? Is confrontation in the best interest of this client at this time? We should not be confronting sin in a client's life because we've had enough of it or because we are just sick and tired of this person's behavior or comments. No, the professional and ethical requirement is that we confront in a way and at a time that is in the best interest of the client. Counselor self-awareness becomes an important ethical concern here and it helps when we ask ourselves these questions. What is my attitude and my personal motivation for confronting here? Am I angry with the behavior of this person? Do I feel like I need to set this person straight? Am I struggling with a judgmental attitude or with an arrogance? Do I really have the best interest of the client at heart right now? Because of the type of relationship that counseling is, we need to remain aware of the power dynamics that are at work. Continually check yourself by pondering, am I responsibly using power without creating dependency or imposing my will on the client? How am I using my power? Am I using it responsibly? We also must remember that redemption is always the goal that we have in mind in Christian counseling. We are not simply wanting someone to feel conviction and guilt, but that they come to a new or a renewed relationship with God. In the past, people used to go to the church or to a priest to confess their sins. But in the 21st century, they are more likely to come to a counselor. So we should be aware of the various forms of confession that we might experience. Often you will hear a positive confession. This is when the client may say, I believe this about God. I believe this about myself. I believe this about life, and so on. It's a positive confession about the core values they hold. Sometimes we will hear a restorative confession where the client confesses and repents of their sins by sharing them with another person and seeking forgiveness. We may encourage our clients to develop the spiritual discipline of self-examination. This is something that we as counselors also need to do, spending time thinking over the past day, examining our heart, thinking through what occurred during the day, thinking through our relationships with those around us, at home, at work, at church, and anywhere else we may have come in contact with another person. Clients also have a tendency that when they're confessing, they're really seeking comfort. 
they want to hear that they are okay. So it is important for us to let them know that God loves them regardless of the problems they are having and that we care for them and see their value as human beings. And finally, there is denial. Sometimes people are just not willing to confess. Sometimes they are paralyzed in their lives, paralyzed in their shame and bondage, and not willing to admit to themselves or anyone else the kinds of sins and problems and consequences that they are having in their lives. Just as there are several ways people confess, there are several resistances to confession that people deal with. We may resist confessing our sins and our problems because we don't want to admit that we need other people. Sometimes for believers, we wrestle with spiritual pride. It is sort of a pharisaical quality where we feel that we wouldn't do this or we wouldn't do that and that we're better than other sinners. But where there is spiritual pride, there is also a self-deception, where we are lying to ourselves by believing that we are better off than we are. Sometimes people are so ashamed of what they have done, or of what they have thought of, that they are fearful to tell anyone. They just can't imagine how we will react, how we will feel about them if we know what they really think or what they've really done or who they really are. This is the opportunity for us to explain again what therapeutic trust is and the importance of confidentiality to help a person get past that kind of paralyzing shame and fear. Sometimes it comes in the form of embarrassment, being seen as a failure. Sometimes people are resistant to confession because they have a faulty understanding of God's nature. They see him as a great big human being with a long white beard up in the sky who just can't wait to condemn them and to send them to hell. And the last factor has to do with the history of an individual. Many people have experienced the church and their family as graceless communities and carry around the pain of not being accepted. It is important to offer a relationship of grace in the counseling room where people can feel comfortable to confess their sins because they will be welcomed and forgiven. I hope that these lectures on sin, confrontation, and confession have been helpful to you. Again, take the time to review and reflect on how you might apply these principles to your life and to your counseling work.